Well, good morning, everyone. This is the 11 o'clock crowd here, too, isn't it? Daylight savings time. Yeah. <laughs> Sounds like it, too. Everybody's awake. Hope you all are rested. Want to welcome here, uh, welcome you here today with us. I also didn't know Nick was going to throw in that little clip of me doing my LeBron James with the dust in there. So that was nice. Nice little touch, Nick. Well, today we're going to talk, like Jennifer said, about James chapter 3. We're going to be in the, the second half of this book, uh, verses 13 through 18. And real quick to back up, last week we talked about the beginning of chapter 3, which was taming of the tongue. And through the taming of the tongue, we learned that it's something that we can't even do. It's, it's our obedience and our surrender to God that would allow us to be fruitful with the very thing that he created us with in the first place. So again, understand the context of what James is talking about when we're going into today's scripture, which is talking about the two types of wisdom. Now, he's going to break apart these two topics and say, here's this godly wisdom, and here's this wisdom which he considers earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. And he's going to spread apart these two types of wisdom and tell us what they are, but we first need to understand going into this what wisdom really is. And another theme I think you're going to see through this is that James's culture, a lot of the topics of conversation they had revolved around envy or jealousy and selfish ambition. Because of the things that were happening in their culture, a lot of conversation took place and they believed that that was the root of all of the evil things happening around them when people would, would slander one another or, or physically inflict violence. James is taking this Jewish culture and teaching them in the ways of Jesus. And it's going to be apparent, I think, as we expose today's scriptures. Uh, you'll see that, but I think you'll not only see what James is talking about, I think you'll see that in light of what's happening in the world today. And you'll, you might say not much has changed. So I want you to be cognizant when I'm, when I'm speaking about uh, what James says through the Holy Spirit today, that where James was might have some similarities or parallels to where we're living in times today. So James opens up in chapter 3, verse 13, with this. He says, Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. So first thing to say is, who is wise among you? Well, in order to answer that, we would need to have an understanding of what the wisdom that he's talking about really is. Wisdom really is defined as having the ability to judge or discern what is right from wrong or what's truthful from what's untruthful. And if we can define that, we can go into Scripture and we can read all of Proverbs, which is centered around this idea of wisdom. So we can learn a lot about what that wisdom is, but if we don't learn how to get it or learn what it does for us, then it's kind of useless in a sense. So Proverbs chapter 2 opens up and says, well, if you want to know how to get wisdom, first thing you need to do is you need to seek God. You need to ask God for the wisdom. And then it says, oh, by the way, that wisdom, if it's from God, the godly wisdom only comes from God. So there's other types of wisdom out there, but the one from God means you need to ask him and you need to understand that it can only come from him. Well, that might present a little bit of a topic or a conversation between some of us because can't we get wisdom from other people? I would say, yes, you can. But scripture teaches that if you're going to get wisdom from someone else and you want it to be godly wisdom, you better make sure that the wisdom that that person has came from God in the first place. 
because he is the, the source of this godly wisdom. But then Proverbs goes on to teach us where this whole wisdom topic starts. Like, how can I start with my wisdom? It says in Proverbs 9, verse 10, it says that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. So I know what wisdom is. I know I can read a book about it. But Proverbs says the fear of the Lord, and I think this is something that we're not really teaching uh, our younger generations, especially today, to have this fear. Right? And I'm not talking about just being scared of God or scared of the things that come with uh, who God is. I think we've taught a lot in today's church as well about God's a friend. He's, a, he's good to you. He'll fight battles for you. He's on your side. And that's true. That's part of who God is. You see, I like to think of fear as other uh, translations use this term reverence. I like to think of fear as reverence. And if you put yourselves in the position of a parent and a child... Reverence, I think, is really an easy thing to remember. So if you have a toddler or you have, uh, can remember raising toddlers, you know, like when you tell them, don't go get a cookie, and then they go get a cookie, and then they break the cookie jar, they're immediately like, oh no, I'm in trouble. They know that they were told, no, don't do this, yet now there's, there's this fear to say, I know there's consequences coming because I did something I shouldn't have. Like my daughter, Ren. I tell her no about something, and right now she's very emotional, but I tell her no, and she starts crying right away. And she's, like, she's the sweetest thing, but she knows when I tell her no, there's a boundary. I don't want her to cross that because I'm trying to protect her. But when she continues to do that thing, there is some form or consequence that comes along with her disobedience, right? Now, who, who has teenagers in here? Yeah, you don't want to raise your hands. <laughs> but if you have teenagers, or if you can remember being a teenager yourself, you probably learned the boundaries your parents had for you, right? That you can do this, this is acceptable, these behaviors, these actions are unacceptable, and with them come consequences. Yet teens, do they always follow the rules? No. They find every way to break every rule. That was me, at least. And through that, if you love and you understand your role in this loving relationship of parent to child, you would value what it means to hurt the other person. And my wife has told me this before. The thing that hurt her the most as a kid was not getting spanked. It was not getting yelled at or told, you know, all these punishments, right? It was when her father would say, I'm just disappointed. That hurt her more than any of the other actions that came along with her not obeying what he said. So reverence in one sense is understanding there's, I have a fear of what's to come for the behaviors, my sinful nature, but it's also to say that I don't want to hurt the heart of my parents because I love them and I value them. So if we're going to begin to understand fear and teach that God's not just a buddy-buddy kind of God, we need to understand how we can be in relationship with other people and with him and how that would begin to unlock this wisdom. But that verse goes on and it says, it's not just the fear of the Lord, it's knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. You have to know who God is before you can fear him. You have to know who your parents are. You have to know these relationships and, and your defined roles in these relationships to say, I need to know about you before I could ever trust you and before I could ever begin to fear you, right? So when we start to open this up, we need to realize too that wisdom, that we're, the wisdom we're seeking doesn't just come from knowledge. Knowledge and wisdom are two different things. 
Wisdom is like we've said, the ability to discern something. Knowledge is this information that you've, you've gathered over time through experiences with people or just your own personal experiences in general. They're not the same thing, right? Like if you go to school and you, be, and you go to college and you get a doctorate in a specific field, let's say you're going to become a family medicine doctor. You go into your practice and you never help anybody get better. You never save a life. You never do any good. All you have is a diploma on your shelf. You've only gotten knowledge for yourself and you've never let it translate into helping anybody else out. So I think in one sense we could think about knowledge as we need to have it, but if it does not go into practice, then there could never be wisdom within that. Some people say that's where wisdom is found is where knowledge and application meet the road. When, when your knowledge takes on meaning, then you can understand how you can become wise. And Proverbs teaches us throughout this process. But James is going to go on and he's going to say, oh, by the way, if you are considering having this wisdom, it should be evident in the way that you work through your deeds, right? So he says in, in verse uh, 13 here, he says, in the meekness of wisdom, that's how your deeds should be carried out. Meekness is like having all of this power, all of this knowledge, all of these things, but having it under control. It's to say, I might know what to say in your circumstances. I might be able to say, yeah, what you're doing is right or wrong, but it's knowing when to say it, who to say it to, and the benefit of what it's going to do for someone else. See, the deeds that we have and the, and the way that we carry ourselves as Christians, it should be evident to others, and James is saying, it should also be evident through the deeds in this state of like this meekness, this humility. He's saying it's like a self-control, but he's going to go on to say this other type of wisdom does not have the self-control. And therefore, when you harness this wisdom, it doesn't end up with the same result. He says in verse 14, he says, but if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. James uses the earthly, unspiritual, demonic, and I like to call it dead wisdom. So if we go back into James, he would say faith without works is dead. So if our wisdom that we're using does not translate into these works that glorify God, then I guess we consider them dead, right? This is something James has already considered and already, and already told us before. But what I liked about studying this was how he talked about jealousy and selfish ambition. Because the words that he uses here are actually really unique when you open them up. In the Greek, the term for this jealousy was called zelos which translates into like zeal or zealous. And when we think of those terms, those are good terms usually, right? Like we have zeal for God. We have this like deep passion for God and making his name known and doing things for his glory. That's zeal. So if zeal is supposed to be good, then why is it considered bad in this verse? Because the zeal that we're talking about here, this jealousy that we're talking about, has to do with focus, the motives are focused on ourselves. It's focused on building me up. It's focused on my desires. It's focused on how I look and how I appear to other people, not about God or bringing any glory to him in the first place. So then he goes on and he says, or if you have selfish ambition in your hearts, 
Another unique thing about that term, you don't find it this way anywhere else in the New Testament. Where we find it is in Greek philosophy, and they were talking about politicians. And they said that politicians had this selfish ambition, these motives that were selfish, where society's needs weren't in concern. It was all about how I can make sure that I'm secure in my status, that I'm secure in who people know who I am, and that I'm doing good things. So James is saying, when people are using this wisdom and they're portraying their power by the the things that they say and the way that they carry themselves, he's really saying you're doing it for yourself. All of it has to do with glorifying us and not God. We're never sharing it with other people. And that's why he considers it earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. Because earthly means that it's not concerned about the eternity of anything. has no concern for eternity. Unspiritual means that it's not concerned about the saving spirit that you're giving others. It's only concerned about your own desires. And it's demonic because it doesn't have the desires of God in mind. It only has the desires of the devil in mind. And that's kind of hard to process. And as I was thinking through this, our small group recently just did a study um, through Big Life Church, and one of the messages we learned is really kind of the way the devil would rather tear you apart and, and distract you away from not just wisdom, but life in general. But if you think about, if you were to sit, and not that you want to sit in the enemy's shoes, but if you were to look from the perspective of the enemy, how could he take something like wisdom and pervert it so that way it's not used for the good of the kingdom? And the way that he described this was basically the first thing the enemy would like to do is that he would like to divide you. He would put something between the relationships of you and the loved ones, especially the loved ones you're trying to reach for the kingdom, and he would put a topic or an opinion or something between you that would begin to divide the way that you believe versus the way that the other person believes. And then once this division, this wedge has already been put between you and another person, then all he has to do is distract you. And if he can distract you through this topic, then you're not even focused anymore on getting people to know Jesus. You're focused on trying to get rid of this wedge that's between you and another person. And he says, well, if I've divided you and I put a distraction in your way that you can't even focus on God right now, he's like, the only other thing I have to do is discredit your witness to other people. And we talked about this a little last week, about how our backs get against the wall, people uh, People start attacking our character or saying things that are untrue about us, or things start coming up to discredit who we are and how we came to know who Jesus is. He says, if I can change the way people think about you, and I can create this distraction in your life and divide the relationships, then you are doing all the work all along. Yet, this wisdom looks so nice, and it's supposed to be used for God, yet this type of wisdom, at the end of the day, is doing exactly what it's intended to do. It's intended to get in there and it's intended to break your relationship with other people and with Jesus. And I think this is uh, another thing, a topic of where Christians fail. Uh, I think as Christians, when we look back at this kind of uh, passage of Scripture to say, okay, well, if I have selfish ambition and jealousy and and this type of wisdom is going to be unspiritual, earthly, and it's going to be demonic, James then goes on to say, that that's where disorder, and in other translations, confusion, and every vile practice exist. And as Christians, I don't think our intention is to get to the end result of that. But if we go back to the beginning to say, is there any jealousy? Is there any selfish ambition in your hearts? 
Because if there is, he's saying the ingredients for disorder or confusion in every vile practice is that. So if it exists at all, it can be produced. But it's not our intention to be jealous. Yet, look at where we've been in life or maybe where you're trying to be in life. Like, let's say you're single and you see everybody else around you getting married. Or let's say you're trying to have kids and you can't and everybody else is having children around you. This is hard to process. I don't have an answer for it. But I know someone that I can bring you to that if we trust in God and we wait on God, we would understand our purpose. The problem with those circumstances isn't that you've been affected by God. It's that now you're starting to be jealous of what somebody else has and not what God has for you. And how do you tell someone who's trying to have kids, like, hey, listen, just wait. That's your answer. Without hurting them and creating this bitterness or this jealousy within their hearts. How do you tell someone who wants something so much that you don't have an answer for what God's got in their life. Because really what happens when we're searching or we're that person who's trying to find a soulmate or trying to figure out why I'm not able to have children, we get stuck in these places of, well, I think life would be good if I could just have it the way that I'm thinking it should be. And this is why James is so hard because when we read the text at face value, it's like, oh, I don't have jealousy or selfish ambition in my heart. But then when life presents you with what you have, the reality of life, then we look at it and say, maybe there's things taking hold of me that I need to let go of so that God can be in control of my heart. He then goes on in verse 17 and he says this. So he says, but the wisdom that's from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. You've heard something probably similar to this because Paul goes on to write about the fruits of the Spirit. And when we talk about these things, each, each of those terms has a real big significance behind it. When we talk about wisdom, wisdom that's from God is pure because it doesn't cause us to sin. It's absence from sin. And then when it's peaceable, it means that conflict, all this stuff can come our way, troubles can come our way, but we're not the ones stirring it up. We're not letting it stay there and then it says it's, it's gentle. It's gentle meaning it's like the golden rule of, listen, I want to treat you the way that I was treated. And the reason that's important that this wisdom be gentle is because like we've said before, you don't know where someone is on their walk with Jesus or how vulnerable they are or how close or how far away they could be to their salvation. So treating people with this gentleness, right? But there's this, then he goes on to say open to reason. What's open to reason mean? I'm not supposed to sway on my opinions, no. Open to reason means that there should be some truths in your life. You should stand firm on what scripture says, on who Jesus is, what the gospel is, and what he's done for you. You should stand firm on these things throughout scripture. But if someone I know is stuck in sin, and I don't try to figure out why or how I could help them, I could never bring them to know who Jesus is. If someone walked in here and said, I am an alcoholic, being unopened to reason would say, well, here, the Bible says that you're a sinner, so you're just a sinner. Open to reason would say, well, tell me what's causing you to be this way or live this way. What's triggering this inside of you that's leading you away from God, and how can I help bring you closer to God? 
Because then he says it's full of mercy and good fruits. Full of mercy is to say, though you're sinning, I've been there before. I am a sinner. So it's extending the arm to say, listen, let me show you a better way because we bleed the same blood. I want to show you what's changed my life. Good fruit simply implies that it should be evident that you have this type of wisdom. And then he says it's impartial. James has already talked about partiality. The sin of partiality. He's saying this wisdom should theoretically, it should not judge others based on outward appearances or by their life circumstances. And then he says it's sincere. I like the other translations that say without hypocrisy. Meaning this wisdom is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. It doesn't change with circumstances. It doesn't live a double life. It is constant because it comes from the unchangeable nature of God. And as I was thinking through all of the, oops, as I was thinking through all of these things James is saying, I'm like, got it. I, I know I need to show my good deeds, and I know I need to, to not have this earthly wisdom or dead wisdom, and I know what I need to do with it, what it should look like. But I'm like, how can I really share a story and, and really reveal what I think God revealed to me this week? And it was a story of Solomon, which is like, oh, wow, okay. Solomon, we know, is wise. We know Solomon is known for his wisdom, so why would I want to share who Solomon is? Because that seems like something we talk about in children's Bible studies. The reason I want to talk about it is because as I was looking at the life of Solomon, every evidence of what James has said from chapter 1 until today is literally laid out from one down all the way, you go down the list, one, two, three, four, five. Everything that happened in Solomon's life is right here in James. So Solomon, quick backstory, he's the son of King David and Bathsheba. And through this mess of family drama, Solomon ends up becoming the new king after David um, passes off the crown. So now Solomon is the anointed new king. And the first thing that he does is he goes up to this place called Givona, which uh, in the Bible looks like Gibeon. Really, it's where, remember the tabernacle at the time? The, the temple hadn't been built. The Ark of the Covenant was moving around. So Solomon, now as a new king, goes to the place to be closest to God, the highest place to offer sacrifices. I find that interesting that that was the first thing he did. He goes up to Gavona and he, and he falls asleep and God reveals himself to him. And when God reveals himself, he says, Solomon, you ask me for anything, I will give it to you. And Solomon says, well, God, you've been faithful to me and my family. You've, you've been kind to my father. You've blessed us. I guess I feel like a little child. And you think about that? When you're seeking wisdom, a lot of times it's because there's something you don't know and you almost feel like a little child compared to what this wise person would know. Or maybe there's a relationship, like think where Solomon was. His dad, King David, and he's now the new anointed king, David's son. He's got some big shoes to fill. You ever been somewhere like that in life where you're taking someone else's position or you're walking into a new season where it's, I have new shoes to fill and I don't know what that looks like. I don't know anything, but how could it ever grow? I, I don't think that God's ever calling me to be like that. God could never be calling Solomon to be like David, right? So he says, I feel like a little child. So ultimately he says, I ask for a heart full of wisdom and discernment so I can lead your people between right and wrong. And God says, I'll gladly 
give you this wisdom, this wise and discerning heart. He's like, but you didn't ask for wealth. You didn't ask for a long life. You didn't ask for your enemies to be wiped out. He's like, so I'll take care of you as well, and I'll give you this wise heart. So Solomon comes back, right? And so now he's at, he's, he's sought. Remember what the Bible teaches? You seek the wisdom. He went into this space where he had to seek God. He went to God first thing before he could ever be offered this wisdom. He found a place, and I think we don't do that enough today. He found a place where he could be close to God. And in that moment when he got close to, the, to the, who God was in that time at the tabernacle in Gavona, he said, God, I asked for this wisdom, and we should be doing that today, finding those times and those spaces to get in, in prayer with God to say, I'm just asking for this. But then Solomon, he gets wisdom, he's wise, he goes back, right? We read stories about how he can make this wisdom uh, tangible, because if, if faith needs to be made tangible, wisdom as well needs to be evident to other people, making it tangible. And there's a few stories we read about, and one is, and I, I don't know why I chose it, but it's kind of morbid. But one of the things that Solomon does first, as he's this new wise king, is these two women come into him screaming and running, and one has a child in her arms. And, and the one who doesn't have the child's like, that is my child. And so, like, imagine yourself in this, like, this would be like drama 101. You'd be like, what is happening right now? And what happens is the woman who's saying, that is my child, says to Solomon, he says, in the middle of the night, there are two prostitutes who had two children. She said, in the middle of the night, this woman's child died. And she put her child on my breast and she took my child from me. And now she's saying that this is her child. And Solomon's response, and this is, I think, the interesting part of wisdom, is not what we would expect. Solomon calls the guard over and has him draw the sword, and he says, we'll cut this child in half. Like, whoa. Bible says the people were in awe of that decision. I would be too. But ultimately, at the end of the day, he figured out who the real mother was, because the woman screams and says, don't kill him. She can keep my child as long as he lives. So through this wisdom, it, it, I think that's how God's wisdom works. It's not in a way where you would expect a scenario to play out, yet you're like, oh, but that's the result. Like godly wisdom is something that's always just kind of doesn't work out the way we in our human nature can make it out to be. So, so David then figures out who the mother of this child is. He sends him on the way, right? Everything's good. But this is what happens. Now David's made his wisdom known to people. He shared a, a bit of his uh, wise doings with other people. And he goes on to build the temple that he was called to do because David couldn't do it because he had shed so much blood. Now Solomon's problem is life is good. And when life gets good, what happens to God? Are we still using God like we did when we felt like little children? Are we asking him for the same things here? Because Solomon's problem is he goes on and he enslaves people to do work for the very thing that God said that he would provide and help him with. He then creates a huge army to protect the kingdom, which is the very thing God said that he would already protect him so long as he was obedient to him. Like, when God is good in your life, understand that he's still God there as when he is in the bottom of that pit. He's not a vending machine. He's not this person we go to when we need something, right? So Solomon starts living this life to say, everything's good right now. I built the temple. I'm the wisest king. 
No one would ever be like me. And then God reveals himself once more and he says, Solomon, I want you to know that you, if you or your people fail to follow my decrees and laws that I've set before you, I will cut off this kingdom from the land. And he says, oh, and by the way, later in the text, he says, if you intermarry outside of where I've called you to, this land would be destroyed. Those people would lead you to follow other gods. They would lead you astray. So what does Solomon do? The wisest king, he marries not one, not two, 700 wives. And he has 300 concubines, prostitutes. What do they do? They lead him astray. He starts worshiping other gods, and God notices that his heart's changed, and he sins and rises up an enemy that it ultimately leads to the collapse of the kingdom. So it's a lot on Solomon, but if I draw this back, I think we can see what James has said. In chapter 1 of James, he says that if you lack wisdom, you need to ask God for it. Did Solomon do that? Yeah. He then says in the next verse in chapter 1, what James says, is that, but if you're double-minded, you will drift away like a wave of the sea. Solomon drifted away like a wave of the sea. Then he goes on in what we learned today in chapter 3, verse 13. He says, if you have that wisdom, make it evident to others through your deeds. He did that too. But what else chapter 3 teaches us today is that if you have selfish ambition in your heart, that it would lead to disorder or confusion in every vile practice. Like you'd say, how could Solomon, the wisest man that God ever made, how could he fall to sin? He had all this wisdom. He was in good standing with God. How could sin ever take Solomon and lead him to worship other gods? That's the power that sin has in our lives if we don't stay in that relationship with God and get in those places where we're seeking him to lead us in our lives. I'm gonna invite the worship team up and I wanna bring up one more point about what James ultimately closes with in verse 18. He says in verse 18, and a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Interesting. Understand this about the harvest. You don't get the crop. Think about it like this. If you could pretend for a moment like there's a field full of the people closest to you or people you know that are lost and who need Jesus, loved ones, family members, coworkers, and they're lost, and you're the laborer of that harvest. Your job is to go around and to plant seeds in their lives to show them who Jesus is, to share the gospel with them so that they can be brought to their salvation, right? You're the laborer. You're responsible for the relationship. You're responsible for the soil, the seed, and all these other things. You're not responsible for the harvest itself. What you reap is eternity with Jesus and with the loved ones who have gone before you and done the same. When those seeds are planted in the lives of other people, he says they need to be sown in peace, though. James also already taught us about this. He said that, in chapter 1, he said, the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. So if you're sowing in anything other than peace, 
which ultimately is found in the divine wisdom from God. If you're sowing from that place of jealousy or bitterness, if you're sowing with worldly wisdom, if you're sowing through relationships and it's something that's not godly, if it comes from this place of anger, he says, you'll never see the harvest. It would never do anything for God's kingdom if you sow it out of anger. Ultimately, at the end of the day, what we're responsible for is being ones who surrender to God and what he has to say, not just for us, but through us to other people so that we can share that peaceful wisdom and see the harvest when the Lord of the harvest comes. Will you stand so I can pray for you, please? God, we ask for you to give us wise and discerning hearts. Lord, there's people around us that we know are lost and we want to reach them for your kingdom. So right now we surrender our hearts and our ways to yours so that way you can lead us, God. Let, let the things that come from us, the actions and the words, be evident that you're calling us to reach the lost, Lord. Let us do this together in community so that we can increase laborers, Lord. I pray for more laborers for your harvest. We know they're few. So we ask that you would continue to increase in us. Give us this wisdom, Lord. Let us be in tune to understanding what is your wisdom and what is the wisdom of the world. God, we ask for our hearts to be inclined to do things that you call us to. Lord, we surrender our all to you and we love you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.
As I seek to win the lost May I be a faithful servant To the message of the cross And may his beauty rest upon me As I seek to win the lost And may I be a faithful servant To the message of the cross So I want us to think about that as we go forward this week. If we want to have a life that's evident of the wisdom that God has given us, how we can be faithful servants to what he's calling us to, how we can be laborers of the harvest, but not for our own selfish ambition, but for the glory of God. So I want to thank you for being here with us today. Pray for traveling mercies as you go your separate ways. We love you all. God bless.